Hey guys, good morning. Good morning. All right, man, it's great to see you guys here today. If you have your Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the book of Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. And also, if you'll find your worship bulletin, reach inside of it, you'll see some uh, sermon notes in there. It's got the scripture passages on the front, a place for you to take some notes on the back. Just pull that out, and uh, maybe you can jot some things down that the Lord might be teaching you today. Sandy, you might have to help Rick with that. Okay, okay. If he needs anything written down, you just do it for him, okay? Rick, I told you I'd get you back, but I would do it with the microphone on, okay? All right. I heard uh, a funny joke this week, and uh, I realize that some people don't think it's appropriate to tell jokes in church, but um, I do if it's the right jokes. You know, I'm sure there are some that are not appropriate for church, but uh, I think if you can't laugh in church, where can you laugh? And uh, so it turns out that this man decided he wanted to go to church, and uh, he'd never really been to church, didn't really know exactly what to wear, so he just decided to go comfortable, Greg, so he went in shorts and t-shirt. And uh, after the service was over, he met the preacher as he was walking out, and the preacher said, hey, son, I'm glad to have you here today, but listen, next week you need to dress a little more appropriate for church. So the next Sunday, the guy's thinking, okay, what do I wear to church today? So he put on jeans, tennis shoes, golf shirt, thinking that's going to be just fine. So he goes to church, good service. After it's over, he walks out, the preacher's there, He says, listen, uh, I thought I told you to think more about what you're wearing to church on Sunday mornings. This is just not appropriate. So what I want you to do is uh, this week, I want you to pray about maybe what God would have you to wear uh, to church uh, next Sunday. So he goes the whole week. He's thinking, what do I wear? So he just decided to go comfortable again. Wore shorts, flip-flops, and T-shirt. After the service was over, the preacher was livid. Listen, we like having you here but this is just not going to work. I told you to pray about what you're going to wear today. Did you even pray about it? Did you talk to the Lord? He said, yeah, I talked to the Lord about it. He said, well, what did the Lord say? The guy said, well, I asked the Lord what to wear today. He said he wasn't sure what to wear here because he's never been here either. So, All right, so we'll cut that little clip out of the audio and just put that in. That's uh, all right. A little bit of laugh and a little bit of dead quiet. That's just the way I like it. I like there to be a little bit of tension. Esther chapter 5. Uh, you know, this was graduation week at, uh, at school. High school seniors graduated. Of course, we honored our high school seniors uh, last Sunday. And I think it was a record group we had, 16 or 17 graduating seniors all together. And... Uh, I gave a message last week from Esther chapter 4 that was for them, but for all of us. And uh, I I did after the service, uh, not the 9 a.m., but the 10.45 a.m., I I did what preachers sometimes do. I remembered that there was one more thing that I wanted to say, and I forgot to say it. And I wanted to just stop everybody in the parking lot and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I wanted to tell you this also. So I'm going to give you that one more thing today along with today's message. So I'm actually going to back up a few verses back to Esther chapter 4. It's okay if you don't turn there. You can just listen along. 
But if you've been here for the series, you sort of know the setup, you know what's going on. Esther, who is a Jewish woman, has become queen of Persia. And uh, her cousin, Mordecai, who has raised her like his own daughter. She is a cousin, but he's apparently much older. He's raised her and cared for her like a father would care for and raise a daughter. And so not only is Esther now queen, but he's given a position of importance uh, in, in, the, in the government. He's an official. He sits at the king's gate. And remember who sits at the king's gate? Only officials, only people who are decision makers get to sit at the king's gate. So he's, he's an official. Well, he uncovers a, a, a plan, a plot, where two men who are very close to King Xerxes, again, he's the king of Persia, they're going to assassinate him. And Mordecai and Esther foil the plan. And the two men who attempted this assassination, they were impelled. Remember what it means to be impelled? They were put on big, high poles. And, uh, you know, they're sharp on one end, and they just slowly slide down the pole. And uh, ultimately, they bleed to death and live in great pain for probably to maybe even up to four or five hours. Very painful. But then it just ends. There, there's punishment for the people who do the bad, but there's no um, reward for Mordecai. And we wouldn't expect Esther to be rewarded because she's the queen. She has plenty of reward. And that part of the story just drops. Well, Xerxes gives a godlike status to a man named Haman. Say Haman. Haman. Remember, he's like the Darth Vader sort of guy. Whenever he shows up, just think uh, in your mind, Darth Vader. And you can even hear the Star Wars Darth Vader theme in the background of your mind. This is a bad dude. Well, with his godlike status, everyone who comes in contact with him is supposed to bow before him. And everyone apparently does except for Mordecai. And this enrages Haman to the point where he decides that not only is he going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill all of the Jews in the land. In chapter 4, the scene changes and Mordecai is in all-out mourning. He's in sackcloth and ashes, which is showing um, how he's feeling on the inside but on the outside of him. And he's telling everyone what's going on. And he and Esther have a conversation through a courier. And Mordecai asks Esther to go to the king to do whatever she can to overturn this, not just a, um, not just a plan, but a plan that has been put into law to overturn it, to save her people. And Esther's response back was something like this. Mordecai, you don't know what you're asking. You can't just go and see the king, even if you're his wife. You have to be summoned. You have to be called specifically by name before you can go into the presence of the king. And if you're not, and he is angry that you're there, if he just says nothing, your head can be cut off right then, right there. And there's someone waiting to do it. 
Mordecai says back to Esther, and what is, you know, the turning of the plot in the book of Esther? He says to her, essentially, and this is not the King James Version, this is the King Jimmy Version, so it's kind of a loose translation, that's my point. He says, God has not put you here by mistake. Or you're not here by mistake. God has put you on the throne. Do you you think it's a coincidence? Do you think it's an accident that God would make you the queen at a time like this when all of your people, all of your household, all of the Jews of the world are set to be destroyed? No. God has put you here for such a time as this. And then here are her words. Chapter 4, verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, to get, uh, go gather together all the Jews who were in Susa and fast for me. He's, he, she's saying, I want you to fast and pray. Call on the name of the Lord. Pray, do not eat or drink for three days. And the idea behind not eating and drinking is that you're gonna completely focus on God during these days. We're gonna call on the name of the Lord because what you're asking me to do, Mordecai, is bigger than something I can do on my own. Even I can't curry this kind of favor from the king. We're gonna need God to help us. Uh, Mordecai, saving the Jewish people from this law that cannot be revoked is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than what we can pull off. We are going to have to call on the name of the Lord. We need to pray. And she said, I and my attendants will fast as you do. In other words, we're going to pray as well. When this is done, man, these are words of a heroine. When this is done... I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. This is what I, I wanted to say, n- not just to the graduates, but, but everybody that walked away from here on Sunday. It was one of those, everybody come back moments. I want one more What really makes Esther a hero is that she pointed her people again toward God. That's a big deal. It's a big deal because the Jewish people that are left in Persia are, are, they're secular now. They're not living by the Mosaic law, at least as a large group of people. There may be a few people here and there, but by and large, they don't call on the name of the Lord. They don't fast and pray. They don't observe the dietary laws of Moses. They're not living according to the scriptures. And so what she says is, listen, we're gonna jump back over a few generations. And we're gonna do what our great-great-grandparents would have done. We're gonna call on the name of the Lord. When they were in trouble, they fasted and they prayed. When they were in trouble, they had faith and trust in God. 
that's what we're going to do. And so what I wanted to say to everyone here last week is we need a generation of people. Emily, Corey, Annie, who will point people back to God. We need a generation that's willing to look over the last few generations that were just secular-minded and have become so, I realize this is a buzzword and we could flesh it out, but I don't have time to. We've become so free-thinking, so liberal-minded that we don't feel like we need God anymore. We have two or three generations of people now who may go to church, may not go to church, put as much faith in a horoscope as they do in the Holy Scriptures, may know a few things about the Bible but don't live by it. We need a generation that will point us toward God again. Chapter five. On the third day, what have they been doing? Praying, fasting, and praying. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. And man, let me tell you something. If we were watching this played out on the big screen or in a dramatic miniseries, man, this is like one of those on the edge of your seats kind of moments. I'm not a dramatic reader, um, although I can be dramatic at times. Um, I, I don't know how to get you to the edge of your seat, but man, you ought to be there. This is an intense, intense moment. She's standing out in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased. And so there, there should be like a big sigh of relief. So go ahead, sigh of relief. <sighs> he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That just meant that her head's not about to be cut off. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. And he's not really serious about giving her up to half the kingdom. It's just a king's way of saying, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. Whatever you're asking for, I'll let you have it. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman, say Haman, say Darth Vader, all right. Together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I've prepared for him. Now, if you're just reading this for the first time, or you're just hearing it for the first time, aren't you going, now, wait a minute. You're talking about, you're talking about a banquet here. Um, I thought there was more serious business here. I, I thought this is where you save your people and all that. Well, just stay tuned. The king says, bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. 
So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what's your petition? Because the anticipation is growing, right? Do you like surprises? How many of you like surprises? How many of you do not like surprises? I'm with you. I don't like surprises. It, it, it doesn't thrill my heart to be surprised for my birthday or for Christmas. I'm just as happy knowing what's wrapped in that box under that tree. I don't like surprises of any kind. I just don't. I, maybe I'm just weird, but that's my own weirdness. He, he wants to know what's going on. The anticipation is killing him. Anticipation kills me. Now, what's your petition? It will be given to you. And what's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Verse 7, Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. What? Then I will answer the king's question. So she puts him off. Why? Because she's smart. Ladies, say smart. This girl knows what she's doing. It was the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong audience to just spring all of this on Xerxes. Remember, Haman is his right-hand man. And so you don't just confront the king with this because you you catch him off guard. You surprise him in in a not-so-good kind of way. You've got to pick your time. You've got to pick the moment. And listen, as important as any of that is, it wasn't God's timing yet. In the next chapter, in the, in the next scene, Xerxes has insomnia. He can't sleep. And so he starts to read through the Persian Chronicles. And he reads the story about Mordecai foiling the plot of the two men who were going to have him assassinated. And he thinks, did we reward him? And so right now, as they sit in chapter 5 at this banquet, Xerxes doesn't know what Mordecai has done for him. And so it's just not the right time. So she invites him to another banquet. Now listen. What Esther does in these verses is as heroic And as great as anything else that's been done in the scriptures. I mean, if you were a Hebrew scholar, you could argue that Esther's story, this part of the story right here, her saving her people, could be listed in the faithful hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. It's not, but it could be. She risked it all. She put her faith on the line. 
not just for her life, but for Mordecai and all of her people. She risked it all to save history. That's a great act of faith. But it's not blind faith. You ever heard that term, blind faith? I don't know that I believe in blind faith anymore. Esther is certainly not operating here under blind faith. No, she didn't grow up in church memorizing big chunks of the Bible. No, she didn't go to Sunday school. She's a, a Jewish woman, but she's been raised in a secular nation, in a secular culture and environment. But she knows enough about her God and his promises to know that God keeps his promises and he honors those who act in obedience and faith toward him. For example, she knew the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, one through three, where God said to Abraham, I know you don't have children of your own right now and you're an old man and you cannot imagine how this might be possible, but I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. Your children are gonna be so many that it would be easier to count the grains of sand by the sea than to count all of your children. I'm gonna bless your children and make a great nation out of them and that nation will bless the whole world. She knew that promise. And she knew enough about God that God doesn't make empty promises. He makes promises and he keeps his promises. Human beings, we're not always good at keeping the promises that we make. But God never fails us. God never lets us down. And she knew that. Why did she point her people toward God in prayer? Because she knew what God said in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive them and I will heal their land. She knew those promises. And she knew that God had already in his providence, because God is in control. Remember, that's a major theme in the book of Esther. God is in control. Not a president, not a prime minister, not a group of lawmakers. God is in control. Not King Xerxes, but God. And God in his providence had already worked out according to his plan that some of the Jews would go back to Jerusalem and even now they are rebuilding the temple. Why? Because they didn't have anything else to do? No. It's God's plan that his people go back to Jerusalem and worship him in the rebuilt temple. And Esther knew that God wasn't doing those things only to see it squashed now by Haman 
She knew that God was at work. Let me tell you something else before we move on. I love that she is a person of action. God, forgive me when I am not a person of action. God, forgive us all. She was a person of action. I love that she prayed. I love that she pointed her people toward God in prayer. But she didn't only pray. She did something about her prayers. It was great that they prayed. But listen, somebody had to do something. They could have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed all the way to the end of the year when the Persians and other tribes and provinces throughout Persia rose up and destroyed all of the Jews. They could have still been prayed as their heads were being cut off because no one did anything but pray. There's a time to pray and there's a time to act. And when it was time to act, she acted. She did something. God had to get on Joshua once. I mean, the great Joshua, the guy who took Moses' place. Moses, or Joshua kept praying about something and praying about it and praying about it and praying about it. And finally, God said, listen, Joshua, you already know the answer. Now get up and go do something about it. So I was wondering this week, what is it that God's given you to do in your life or with your life that you're still praying about, yet you already know what the answer is? You just haven't had the courage to go and do it. I'll guarantee you that there's someone sitting in this room or someone listening to this message who is praying about something and you've been praying and praying and praying and praying. Listen, you know what to do. You're, you're waiting for God to make it easy for you or you're, you're maybe waiting on him to tap someone else to go and do it. Maybe you're wondering why God is not intervening. He's waiting on you. Some of us are praying about things. We need to stop praying about them and, and go do something. Go do something about it. Trust God in his promises. See that he's at work. And now go join him. Go do something. Then the scene changes. Everybody still with me? Verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Say high spirits. He's feeling good, man. Feeling good. I've been to a banquet with the queen. Invited to another one tomorrow. It's a private banquet. Just me, the king, and Esther. But. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he had neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Mordecai is described as a man of small stature. So he's not a very big guy. We don't know about Haman, but he's probably a regular sized man. But 
because Mordecai is smaller, Haman is just thought to be bigger physically. But you really start to see how small this guy is. Mordecai is seen as the the big man here because he won't bow before this man who's been given a godlike status from another man. He's not a god, Haman. He's not a god, he's a man. And Mordecai has drawn the line here. I will not worship another human being. One of the 10 words is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That was the line for him. I'm not gonna do it. In fact, it's what really kind of has us to this mess. Haman, who has this godlike status, is very small, but Mordecai, who's just a man and not even as large as a normal-sized man in the story, he's the bigger man. He's a big man because he stands up for what is right and stands up against what is wrong. And Mordecai, or Haman, hates him for it. He's thinking, this little Jewish man, he, he's got the official documents because he read those off last week to Esther. He's, he knows I'm a part of this. And even still, he won't give me respect. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home. That means he holds it together, Chris, but just barely. He's just barely keeping it together. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about what vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and the officials. So he's bragging on himself. You you can tell he's in one of those um, insecure big man moments. I'm not a I'm not a tall man by any means. Uh, I'd love to be. I mean, I'd take being another two or three inches taller. To be honest with you, but. Um, I know they have, there's such thing as little man syndrome, which I really don't think I have. But have you ever seen a big man with big man syndrome? I have. The big man that feels like he's got to stand right up beside you all the time so he can show you how tall he is. It's usually from the insecurity that he has on the inside about who he is as a person. You see the tall man here, the the man that's supposed to be the big man, he's in his insecurity. He's having a banquet for himself, gathering everybody together so that he can, you know, brag on himself and, and probably expecting others to do the very same thing. He said, and that's not all, verse 12. Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave. And... She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Verse 13, just as a mouthful about Haman. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Think about it. This man has run down a laundry list of everything he has. Now, we don't get an Excel spreadsheet of all of his valuables, but he talks about his vast wealth. 
position, power. Uh, the only guy in the kingdom greater than him is Xerxes. I mean, this guy has as much power and authority in the kingdom as you can have without being the king. He has a wife. He has many sons. We find out later he has 10. That's a way of, of bragging on himself and what a stud he is. It's a reference to the long life and the many children that he's gonna have, grandchildren that he'll have in the future. He's on the A-list when it comes to parties. In fact, he's on the A-plus list. He, he's on a list that only two other people are on. There's two people on that list, Xerxes and Haman, to be invited to the queen's party. And he's still empty. Let me, let me say something, and we'll move down through these last few verses, and we'll stop for today. Bitterness and anger and resentment will destroy your life. It'll destroy you and everybody around you. And those things just grow naturally in your life, like they're native to your life. You know what I mean? Like in my yard, I plant tall fescue that doesn't grow. I don't know where it does grow. It grows in a couple yards in my neighborhood, but it does not grow in mine. Clover grows everywhere. I didn't plant any clover, but it's just native to my yard. And it, it, it's, it's everywhere until the grass is cut. You know, uh, for a couple of days, you, you see reminders that it's everywhere because it's got these little white blossoms everywhere. I, I can see, you know, with every year that comes and goes, it's just taking over another spot in the yard. That's, that's what anger and bitterness and resentment does in your life. If you don't pull it out, if you don't kill it, it just grows, it spreads, it takes over, and it destroys you because you can't be happy when things ought to be good. When you look at a list of everything you have or the blessings that God has given you and you know you ought to be happy, but you can't be, it's destroying you. And it hurts all of the people around you that are in relationships with you. I know I've seen it. I've done it. The people that are sitting here at this party right now with Haman. I'll just tell you because you've probably already read it. They're all going to die. And ultimately, they're going to die because of Haman's bitterness, resentment, and his anger. 
his want for revenge, to want Mordecai to hurt so bad. And here's how bad he wants him hurt. Look at these next few verses. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, which is about 75 feet or roughly eight stories. So it's big. Probably building it on top of a tall building or somewhere in the city wall. Have a pole set up, and remember what the impaling poles are for. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. And then listen to this cold-hearted woman. (laughs) Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Ah, just go kill a brother, and then go have a good time. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Haman made a mistake with his life that many of us make. He thought that life was about him. And hey, listen. Think about it if you're a Persian. And you're Haman's mama and daddy. Or if you're from the north, mother and father. You'd be proud as heck of Haman. I mean, maybe not the killing part, but maybe. I mean, looking at this on the, on the outside, looking in, he's gone and gotten a great education. He, he's rose, or risen up in the company ranks. I mean, he's the executive vice president. Not just one of the vice presidents, the executive vice president. I know in some companies there's like 50 vice presidents, but he is like the guy right under the illustrious potentate himself. Pretty wife, nice home. He has estates, lots of kids, giving you lots of grandbabies. You would think this guy is a real success. You can't put everything he owns on one spreadsheet, John. There's probably sheets and sheets of spreadsheets in here that this guy has just for his wealth and everything that he has going on in his life. But he's miserable. He's empty. Because he thought what many of us think, that life is about me. Now, what you might be expecting me to say is that life is about others. No. Your life is about honoring God. That's easy to forget, isn't it? Confessional. I think I had forgotten that until this week. 
This story reminds me, it should remind all of us, that life is not about you. You living your life is not about you being as happy as you possibly can by getting as much as you possibly can and doing as much as you possibly can. It's about when you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. If Jesus is really Lord in your life, it's about glorifying Him. It's about, in every way, pointing people toward Him. To bring glory to God means two things in particular. One, it means that when you come in to worship God, in the Old Testament, it's bring Him glory. In the New Testament, it's praise Him and worship Him. Not just with what you sing, but what you bring. When we come into the presence of God, we're not supposed to come empty-handed. We're supposed to be generous. We're supposed to give a gift of offering to the Lord. And it shows that he has priority in my life. It's an act of worship that says, everything I have is a gift from God. So I give him a portion back to show that really he owns it all. And the second thing it means is that you extol, it's a good word, isn't it? Extol, you you demonstrate the grace and mercy and generosity and love and kindness. And lots of these words that today people think are weak words, but they're words that characterize the life of Christ and they ought to characterize us So we bring glory and worship to God when we show others mercy and grace and love and kindness, whether they deserve it or not. It's Sunday. You know this. Some of you are thinking about lunch right now and where you're going to go eat lunch. Years ago, I baptized a lady in our church that Karen and I had gotten to know um, in a restaurant where she was a server, a food server. And... We had a number of conversations with her on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. This was years ago when I was pastoring in my first church. It was a very traditionally modeled church, but a group of us would go out on Sunday evenings. It was, anybody remember Max and Irma's? The best bowl of chicken tortilla soup ever. Not there anymore, but she, she would serve us, and she would talked to me about all the reasons that she did not go to church. What's funny is she would start talking about the reasons she did not go to church before she knew I was a pastor. So that was like gold. I was hearing from somebody who was just saying it like it is. And she was willing to do that, especially on Sunday nights, because she'd been dealing with church people all day You picking up what I'm putting down? People who, who would come in, they've been to church, you can tell 
how they're dressed. I, I like going somewhere on Sunday afternoon to eat because people don't, well, it's funny. Sometimes church people look at me and think, there's no way you've had time to go home and change clothes. So you didn't go to church today. And I love it when they ask me about them so I can say, well, actually, yeah, I preached on Esther chapter 4 today. That really messes with some people. Anyway. She hated, she hated Sundays because she hated dealing with Christians, people who had obviously been at church because they're dressed like they have been. And they're just more demanding. And then they don't want to tip anything. Or they leave a Bible track as a tip. And listen, I don't mind you leaving a Bible track, but if you're going to leave a Bible track, you ought to attach a $100 bill to it. Now, that will make an impact. But she hated Sundays because she had to deal with Christians. The way to bring glory and honor to the Lord today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is treat your server today like you're a follower of Jesus. Be kind to him or her. I was reminded today in Bojangles, which is my home kitchen away from home, that you don't know who's taking your order. You don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know what their life is like. You don't, mean, you don't know what they're going through, what they're thinking about, what they've lost, who they've lost. You don't know who is going to help you today at the grocery store or someone you're just going to pass in casual conversation with today for which you will be the last Christian that he or she ever encounters before they stand in the presence of God. So you should live like Jesus before them. You should talk to them like Jesus. If you're his follower, you should be generous like Jesus. Talk like him, love like him, forgive like him, have mercy like him. My dad used to say to me growing up all the time, my gosh, I can still hear him say it. It's not all about you, boy. You're not the only one living in this house. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? There are three other people living in this house. You're just the fourth one. It's not all about you. Whatever works for you. Hey, it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And living like him before the people that you encounter. If you don't, it'll destroy you. Because that pole that Haman set up for Mordecai is the one he's going to die on. Let's pray together.
God, you are so good to us. It sounds almost trite to even say it, but you are. How do we talk about a God who can't be described in words and language alone, but we try? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for dying for us. Lord, I pray that every person in this room today would recognize that like Esther, you have a purpose and a plan for our lives. Help us to be more like Esther. To not only be people that pray and talk about things, but people who act on those prayers and in great faith, trusting in your promises. And God, don't let us live like Haman, where we live only for ourselves. Help us to recognize and really wrap our lives around the fact that we are created to give you glory, to honor your name, to lift you up because you are worthy of that. And we do that through our giving, through our worship. But Lord, we also do it when we live like you in a world that so desperately needs you. So give us the power and courage today through the power of your Holy Spirit to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus to the people that we encounter. Lord, I also recognize that there is perhaps someone here today who, like Haman, has a whole list of reasons why he ought to be happy, yet he's not. Lord, if it's true in a person's life in this room that the reason for that unhappiness and unsettledness is that they do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're calling them today, Lord, I pray that they would surrender their life to you right now in this moment. And so if that is you, you pray this prayer with me. And just say, God, today, today, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for loving me. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Create in me a clean heart. Give me a clean slate and a new start today going forward. Thank you for loving me and saving me. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. And those who agreed said, Amen.
Hey, let me ask you guys a question. I know you're already playing it. But if I make a couple of reminders, and by the way, y'all can stand up. You've been seated for a while. If I, if I make just a couple reminders before we leave, can we end with let the praises ring? Because I only got to hear part of it in the first service. In the second service, I was praying with someone out there, and so I missed it in here too. It's a powerful song and a great way to end today, I think. So if you don't mind, is that too big of a change? Y'all can handle it. I know you can. So let's just end with that. And uh, Jeff, at, at the end of the song, after everybody's had one more chance to get your praise on, does that translate? Man, I'm not sure. Okay. Then, Jeff, you just dismiss us. Uh, this week, Vacation Bible School, don't forget it. And uh, those of you who are in my uh, Wednesday night Bible study, we're still having Bible study. I'm just not sure where. Somewhere on these premises. Uh, so you just gather up in the lobby, and I'll meet you out there at 7 o'clock. And uh, I'll have a rope with me, and everybody can hold the rope. And we'll, no, we'll, we'll all go to wherever we're going to meet. Uh, Friday night, we're having a church-wide fish fry. Everybody's invited, not just the kids and their families in Vacation Bible School. Uh, the fried fish uh, is going to be calorie-free, fat-free, so no worries there. Uh, we're going to have a great time. I want you to just come out and be a part of that. I think it's from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, kids, Vacation Bible, well, most of the kids are they're already out. Parents, you're even better. Donnie has promised to dye his hair if we have a hundred kids. Not every night. Yeah, so Brian, I'm figuring we better get him while we can on this because next couple years he, he might not be able to make this challenge. I can't believe I just said that. He told me I had a big butt, so anyway. Um, we need to get a hundred kids here at least one night. But these kids are going to be learning about Jesus. It's going to be a great week. Uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for your tithes and offerings. I just want to remind you, and you may hear this several times through the summer, you just don't know how important your gift is week in and week out. And uh, because it's the summer, and uh, summer can be a real struggle for churches, so thank you for your tithes and your offerings. If you put your faith and trust in Christ today, please let us know about it. The way to do that is during this last song, you'll just take your connection card, make sure we have your name and a way to contact you, and then on your way out, our ushers will be at the back doors. They'll have receiving baskets. Just drop it in there, and one of us will get in touch with you this weekend. Also, be sure to leave your prayer requests there because those are very important to us as well. We take those seriously. We pray about those. We contact people who give us prayer cards if there's contact information on it. That stuff matters to us. So um, make sure that you do that. I think that's everything. Been a good day? I can't, I can't wait for next Sunday. It's Father's Day. And uh, it's okay to do something fun and special with your father, but mom, bring him to church first. If you want to go to the lake later, that's fine. Just be here at the 9 o'clock service. Have dad in church. He needs to be here. Amen? Because he just needs church, right? All right. Let the praises ring. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.